seen in a while, and faces I saw as recently as this morning. But uh, good to have you here. And then those of you who are at home tuning in, we're in Revelation. We are in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We've gone through verses 1 through 7 three times. We're going to go through verses 1 through 7 one more time today. This is our professional audiovisual department. They get an extra zero every week to their paycheck. Just kidding. These guys do it for nothing. We're grateful for them. All right, let's pray and let's get back into understanding what the book of Revelation. Today's going to be kind of interesting. I think you might uh, enjoy it. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for life. Thank you for this time we can gather in a place without uh, oppression or. Um, difficulty. We freely meet here and we get to pray and hear your word and we just pray that your spirit will continue to be with us. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the things you want us to know by your spirit. Let those things that are said and thought and believed that are false to be forgotten, whether no matter where they come from, me or anybody else. And uh, we're just searching through your word. We do our best to study. We try to open it up. We look at the things that are present. Uh, we uh, we amble forth, if seen through glasses darkly, but know the day will come when we see perfectly, according to your scripture. So help us now to reflect upon your words set to music. Bless uh, people who are tuned in to seek you and who have come here today to seek you, that they'll be able to set aside the cares of this world just for the next uh, few minutes, and uh, let's see what you have to say. We pray for this now in Jesus' name, amen. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will find no
Okay, we've been covering what Jesus had John write to the seven churches. Specifically, we have been covering these past three weeks what he said to the church at Ephesus. 
the first, first of the seven churches. And we noted that the following conclusion is given by Jesus to the church at Ephesus. He that has an ear, this is verse seven, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So that is the <clears throat> promise that he gives the, the church at Ephesus through John in this revelation. He that overcomes is included at the end of every single one of the addresses to these seven churches. To he that overcomes, to he or she, he is always she who overcomes. To he who overcomes, and also at, to every single one of the seven churches, he says, he that has an ear to hear, let him or her hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so we know that we have an address from Jesus to John in the Revelation, to all seven, but in every one of them, he concludes in some way saying, if you overcome, I will give you this thing, this blessing, this reward if you want, however you want to put it. Uh, we then discovered there are 17 promises that Jesus gives to the believers in those seven churches. And before we detail the biblical context of these promises, we're gonna get through the first four today. I wanna point something out. We have to ask ourselves, were those promises just to those seven churches at that time, back at 65 AD or so, when Jesus spoke it to those believers in those seven churches. Is, when we read this, does it have application only to them? Keep that in mind, what you think. And therefore, does it have application to us today when we read what the promises are? So we, it might be in the Bible, that's fine, but does it apply to us? I have a hard time believing that it was only to the seven churches. I believe that if it was eternal for them, but I do think we have to be careful on how we assign them. Um, if I'm right in this, then the historicist position of Revelation has some value to what we're talking about. So as a means to support what I just said, notice what Jesus says to all seven. He says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, he says that to the church at Ephesus. It's one church at Ephesus. He says, he that has an ear, let him hear what he says to the churches. So what we know from that is what he says to the church at Ephesus is applicable to the church at Thyatira, at Sardis, at, uh, at all the different uh, churches that are involved. So in other words, the believers at Ephesus weren't supposed to just believe what he says to the church at Ephesus. They were also supposed to consider what he says to Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Laodicea and all the other of the, the rest of the seven churches. So as I said, there are 17 promises that he gives. He gives one to the church at Ephesus. He gives one to the church um, after that and then another one and then he starts to give two and three and then four and then one and two. So let's go through. I'm gonna read the 17. You ready? We did it last week, I think. He says to the church at Ephesus, if you overcome and if you have the ears to hear, I will give you to eat of the tree of life. 
which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So there's the first promise he gives to those believers. I will give you to eat of the paradise of God. The second promise is you will not be hurt in the second death. There's another promise that he gives. Then he says, I will give you to eat of hidden manna. Third promise. Fourth, fourth comes with three different elements. I will give to him a white stone, and in the stone a new name is written, which no man knows save he or she receives that white stone. Okay? And then he says, I, the next one, number five, I will give him power over the ethos, over the nations. He shall rule with an, a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. That's the sixth promise. The seventh, I will give to him the morning star. Eight, the same will be clothed in white raiment. Nine, I will not blot out his or her name out of the book of life. 10, but I will confess his name before my father. 11, and before his angels. 12, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. 13, and he shall go out no more, meaning out of that place. Uh, 14, I will write upon him the name of my God. 15, and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which is cometh down out of heaven from my God. 16, I will write upon him my new name. And then finally, 17, I will grant to sit with me in my throne. That's the last one. I'll grant you that person who overcomes and has an ear to hear to sit with me in my throne, the final of the 17 promises. So it's gonna take us another few weeks to get through all these promises, but we're gonna do it because we're, gonna, we're taking an exhaustive approach to the study of Revelation. So let's go back to number one, the one he gives to the church at Ephesus. If you overcome... And if you have ears to hear, then I will give you to eat of the tree of life. And then there's a parenthetical reference, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. All right. So what does the Bible say about this tree of life? It's mentioned here. And Jesus says to those in Ephesus, if you overcome and you have an ear to hear, I will give you to eat of this tree. Firstly, it's mentioned or alluded to in eight places in scripture. The first one, as you probably are well aware, is in Genesis chapter two, verse nine, where it says, out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. There's the, there's the first statement. He's given the, the uh, tree out of the ground that's good for food and it's pleasant to the sight. Then there's a semicolon. He says, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we have trees that are good for food, we have the tree of life, and we have the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Three trees are mentioned there, uh, the tree of life being one of them. We don't learn anything about the tree of life except by its name. It's called the tree of life, right? And it's in the midst of trees that have fruit that's good for food, and it's in the midst of the garden. That's the first thing we learn about tree of life. The last fact is interesting because it's in the midst of a garden here in Revelation, Jesus says, I will give you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of paradise. And in scripture, garden and paradise are very, very closely related in terms of meaning. 
Uh, so when someone was in a garden, it could be very similarly transcribed as being in a paradise. And if somebody was in a paradise, it could very easily be transcribed as being in a garden. So here in Genesis, we read that the tree of life is in the midst of the garden. It, but in Revelation, Jesus says, I will give you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of paradise. So that's an interesting little uh, fact, sort of wild. It makes us wonder if the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden is in the presence of God in paradise. And it makes you wonder if, if the Garden of Eden was actually the paradise of God that fell from paradisical, paradisical glory when the fall came. It's, it's really an intriguing concept. The second time the tree of life is mentioned is in Genesis 3, 22 through 24. This is after the fall. Now listen to what is said. And those of you who have been through the LDS temple have seen some of these passages kind of borrowed and assigned to their temple ceremony. It says, behold, the man has become one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. That's all it says. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man from the garden and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims, I am in Hebrew, means a plural of angels, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, the way it says that in the English through the Hebrew, it means it's protecting the entrance way toward that tree of life, this cherubims and the flaming sword. Those passages give us a little more information. For instance, we are told that if fallen Adam were to put forth his hand and eat of that tree of life, he would live forever. Uh, the implication for some is had Adam eaten one piece of that fruit, he would have had eternal life. And, but I think it might be, we might be reading into that interpretation and because of how it, it goes on to be described in Revelation. And I think it could also mean that constant access to that tree, constant eating of it, gives a human being life eternal. Not just the one time and boom, they have it, but put a cherubim there and guard the way to it because eating it, they will have eternal life if they keep consuming. So instead of the magical one bite and it was done, to me, I, it seems like you, there's gonna be an eating of it throughout the course of uh, the age or eternity, whichever it is. So we also learn that God drove the man out of the garden and then he placed at the east end of the garden cherubims or, uh, and a flaming sword to keep the way, it means, the entrance to get access to that tree of life. In other words, it was important that fallen humans should not have access to this tree that Jesus is promising to give people to eat from who overcome and hear him. It was important after the fall for no one to be able to get access to that tree and from entering in and participating and eating it, which would give them life eternal. So could it be that the garden is still in the presence of God? Jesus is now talking. He's already ascended into heaven. He's given John a revelation. And he says to the people at Ephesus, if you overcome and if you hear, I will give you to eat of the tree of life. So it's still in existence. 
at least spiritually it is. And Jesus says, one of the benefits, one of the blessings that you're gonna receive for overcoming and hearing is to be able to eat of this tree. And we're gonna talk more about that right now. The next time that it is talked about is it comes when it, there's a personification of wisdom in the Old Testament. It's in Proverbs 3, 8. And that's where wisdom is given a female identity of a, of a human, sort of, so to speak. And it says, she is wisdom, a tree of life. Uh, to them that lay hold upon her and happy is everyone that retaineth her. So there it's, the tree of life is kind of personified as wisdom. Eat of that tree and you are happy and good. So I don't think that has a direct connection to the actual tree of life we're talking about in uh, Genesis and in Revelation, but it is a reference to the tree of life. Then eight chapters later, the tree is mentioned again in Proverbs eleven thirty. the fruit of the righteousness is a tree of life. So now it's not the tree of life, but it means that there's, it gives something. There's something life abiding in partaking of its fruit. So uh, it says, and he that winneth the wise, uh, winneth souls is wise. Notice in that Proverbs verse, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And so we have a connotation there of eating the fruit of this tree. And that's gonna come into play now as we talk more about those who have overcome. The next two meanings of the tree are also in Proverbs. It says, hope deferreth, maketh the heart sick. Meaning, hope that is put off makes a heart sick. So prolonged hope can make somebody's heart heavy and sick. But it says, but when the desire arrives, it is a tree of life. So the tree of life there is the arrival of coming, arriving at something. It's coming to something and, and it's a tree of life. It's something that is gonna give this life that Jesus is promising here in Revelation. So it's kind of the fulfillment of desires instead of being heart sick by prolonged hope, you actually have the arrival of the thing talked about. The next one is in Proverbs 5, uh, 15, four. A wholesome tongue is a, not the, is a tree of life, but perverseness thereof is a breach of the spirit. So again, the tongue has the power in scripture to give life. We can heal people with our tongues. We can use kind words. We can tell someone that they look nice today or we can tell somebody they look horrible today. And we can kill and, or we can give life. And there in the, the proverb is saying, a kind tongue is a good thing because it's like a tree of life that is abiding and giving, keeping people alive versus a sour tongue is not good. Uh, the perverseness therein is a breach of the spirit. So not a tree of life. So those are our passages of tree of life, except we come now to Revelation. Our passage today says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So he says in the Revelation, this is its location. It's in the paradise of God. We don't ever have, we, not ever, but we have very little idea of what's beyond. But in Revelation, we have this first promise and we have something that tells us there is a tree of life in the paradise of God. Now, spirit, that might mean spiritually. I think everything's spiritual. And I don't think any of it's tangible in terms of, wow, I'm picking the fruit off it. But 
It means something. Maybe it is physical. I don't know. Thus far, we have some solid ground upon which to stand relative to the tree of life. In addition to the fact that Jesus says he will give its fruit for us to eat if we have and or its leaves uh, to eat, too. We'll talk about that in a second for anyone who overcomes. We also know that to eat of it is to have life forever. That's from our taking what happens in Genesis. We know that it is a likened to wisdom. So we know the tree of life, partaking of the tree of life is a likened to having wisdom, to healing, like it says about the tongue, and to fulfillment rather than to hope. So the tree of life is connected to all those principles. Then in the last chapter of Revelation, so notice this. The tree of life is mentioned in Genesis, and we have a few mentions in Proverbs, and now the tree of life is mentioned at the bookend, Revelation. And this kind of back and forth is really important to understanding the the context of the Bible. Genesis is laying out a tree of life here. uh, Jesus is now promising to eat of it for those who overcome. And in Revelation, we get more insight to its way it is, where it sits, its purpose, whether spiritual or physical, can't tell you yet. It says in verse uh, one and two of Revelation 22, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out from the throne of God and of the lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on the other side of the river, excuse me, and on either side of the river, there was the tree of life, not a, but the, which bare 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So now we're getting into some real esoteric language and we're getting into some meaning that we can't pinpoint fully, at least not yet. And we'll, we'll try to when we get to Revelation 22. I'll cover it when we get there. But John adds these words 12 verses later. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. So once again, some contextual pieces are coming together from Genesis and now Revelation, the bookends. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the way to the tree of life into that paradisical garden of God was protected by cherubims and a flaming sword. That way you're not gonna get through because you can't eat of that tree at this stage in your life. Um, But in this last chapter of the book of Revelation, we read, blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have the right to enter in the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So we have some imagery now that is starting to kind of uh, solidify for us on afterlife imagery. We have a city, we have, a, uh, we have a, a tree of life that's in the paradise of God, which is in all probability, according to scripture, in the city. We have people who have the right to gain access to partake of that tree of life. We know that partaking of it, the fruit, 12 fruits, every, once fruit every season, and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. And uh, uh, I have a, a pothead nephew, not, I have several pothead nephews, but uh, one of my pothead nephews says that that's the healing herb of uh, the, the, 
That's the herb of life, man, because <laughs> it heals the nations. I'm like, shut up. So, but anyway, uh, these interpretations can come from everywhere. But this is really remarkable, the connection between uh, Genesis and Revelation in this gate and, and this panoply of scripture and God working his plan out, beginning it in Revelation, I mean in Genesis, ending it in Revelation. It remains a mystery what and how the healing powers um, the living powers of the tree, how it affects human beings and or the nations after this life, because we're talking about something Jesus is going to give. Now, there's a debate. Some say this is what Jesus is giving and that he is giving the tree of life to people now who are in the presence of God's kingdom by the Spirit. There's a debate on that. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. You're going to have to figure out what you think on that. Uh, I personally believe that these promises were given to believers then and have had spiritual application to believers ever since, but we don't have much evidence to prove that. And so it's just really a conjecture on my part. You're, you know, let the spirit guide. Um, since I'm on this subject and I've got my toes sort of in the water on that, do those things that are said in Revelation apply to us today or were they just to the seven churches and the people there? Will it apply to us what Jesus promises when we die? Will we have access to, through the garden gate into the paradise of God to eat of the tree? Will the leaves be for the healing of the nation? Literally, is this ongoing now? Uh, it seems to me that Jesus has had the complete victory um, and that God is now all in all because of it. That's how I see scripture. And it seems to me that all enter into uh, the presence of God after this life, those who are able to abide his glory, he's a consuming fire because of the blood of Jesus uh, on their life and cleansing them through faith will enter and abide in that glory. And those who cannot will enter in what is a lake of fire to them, being purged of all uh, things that are not of God. And in this state, they are baptized by fire until they come to repentance. As Jesus says, all will come to repentance and, uh, and are void of the things of this world. And it seems to me, and I could be wrong, but taking all this imagery, that heaven is like there is heaven and then there is the city gates, just like Jerusalem. This is the new Jerusalem. It's a heavenly Jerusalem. And there are people who live outside the gates just as there are people who lived outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And there are people who live inside and there are people who living inside will have access to the temple, the spiritual temple. And there will be people who live inside who have access to that paradise of God where the tree of life is. It seems to me somehow this is how it is coming together beyond this, this life. Now, again, I'm just taking everything I read and that's how it seems. You may have a completely different version or vision, but just because the city exists and there are gates to it and there's a tree of life in the midst of it and a paradise and God and a throne and a temple measure and all, does not mean there's nothing outside of it is the way I would see it. So uh, the description of those who get to enter in and who Jesus will give these 17 blessings to appear to be those who have had faith on him and those who have received him as Messiah, those who have then uh, walked with him by faith. And that's how I see it no, now. Maybe these ideas will change. Okay, that's the partaking of the tree of life for whatever it means. And as we go through and we hit those verses in Revelation in the years to come, 
uh, we will talk about what those other tree of life passages might mean. So after saying that to the tree, uh, to, the, to Ephesus, we come to promise number two. And he says, those who overcome and those who hear, uh, actually, it says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Same line as he gave to Ephesus. He that overcometh shall not be hurt in the second death. So there's promise number two. One, eat of the tree of life. Two, you won't be hurt in the second death. Okay, twice in Revelation chapter 20, we read about the second death. It is only mentioned in the book of Revelation. Second death is nowhere else. In Revelation chapter 20, verse six, it says, blessed and holy is he that is part of the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. And we've talked about this before, but they shall be priests of God in Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Then in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So Jesus has promised uh, the church they shall not be hurt in the second death if you overcome and if you have ears to hear. Not hurt. Uh, finally, in Revelation 21.8, this is what it says. Listen, but the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters. For it, interestingly, it says this, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So from these passages, we're led to understand and believe that some unique things about this second death, which people are protected from uh, if they are in Christ. First of all, it says those who overcome will not be hurt. Notice that word carefully, not be hurt. Now, Jesus could have said those who uh, overcome will not burn forever and ever in the lake of fire. He doesn't. He says, those who believe will not be hurt. That's all he says. Hurt is an interesting word because the Greek is adikeo, and it means treated unjustly. They will not be treated unjustly, uh, which in my estimation is a, a way to say they will receive what they have sown. They'll reap what they have sown. It will not be unjust, okay? Okay. Young's literal translation of the Greek, which really gives us insight to this, and I kind of apologize to some of the faces out there because you have entered into what we call meat. And uh, meat is uh, the heavy stuff of the faith. Milk is in the morning at 10.30 if you are full of meat right now and want to throw up and get out of here. So anyway, this is the meat. Young's literal translation of this verse says this. He who, has, he who is having an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the assemblies. He who is overcoming may not be injured of the second death. So we have two words now, one from the literal translation and then one from the uh, translation of the Greek. One says hurt, one says injured. Now, if you say, well, I, I got a new lawnmower and it injured me, that's a very big difference than I got a new lawnmower and it cut me up for eternity. Injuring means a loss. It means some, something is going to be lost. You will not be hurt. You will not be injured in the second death. Hurt, but not annihilated, not 
mortally wounded in that sense. So I like Young's better than King James because one, it places the overcoming in a constant. It says he who is overcoming, not he who has overcome. That's how the King James puts it. But this is more in a sense of we're, you know, I haven't overcome completely, but I'm overcoming. I'm growing. I'm overcoming. I like that. And two, because will not be injured speaks volumes, volumes to what will happen in that second death. So, and do you see the kind of the paradox of what we're talking about? That the scripture says will not be hurt in the second death, not be injured in the second death. It's like we're talking about death here, but we're talking about being hurt or injured. And that seems like a paradoxical way to talk. But death means the end of something that is living. Just remember that. So here Jesus promises those who are overcoming that they will not be hurt or injured in the second death, which is the death of something living in them. Okay? Now, just keep in your mind, rhetorically, I ask you, what is living in someone who has died and they have died faithless and they have not believed? What is living in them? That is what is going to die. That's the second death of that thing that lives in them. If they haven't received Christ, they've died physically, they're dead spiritually, they go after this life to this place, this lake of fire, they're gonna be injured and hurt there, what's gonna die there? The thing in them that is alive. What is, in, what is alive in somebody who hasn't believed and, and has already died physically? What is alive is all that is in this world. Everything that is not of God. Their reprobate self is going to die. That's what's gonna die in that second death because that's what it is, the death of something living. And it will be a process of harming them. It will be a process of injuring that living thing in them to bring them to the place God has wanted them to come to, but they've refused. I don't think it's gonna be a pleasurable thing, but uh, Lake of Fire doesn't sound pleasurable to me, but the implication here in the promise is that those who escape the second death will not experience this in their, in their existence. So he promises you won't be hurt or injured by the second death if you overcome and have an ear to hear. That's the second promise. This fits with the whole of scripture. Uh, the descriptions of God who created us being just and fair and good and every man reaping what he has sown, the justice part, this fits. Uh, we covered this before, but in my estimation, since those who enter into the second death it's their reprobate state that is dying. That is my estimation, and you might see it as the annihilation of the soul, which is far more than a hurt in my estimation. Some people might believe that hurt or injury, you won't be hurt or injured, that those who are being hurt or injured are doing it to uh, forever and ever or for annihilation, and I don't think that fits with the context of understanding God through scripture. So this causes me to believe that the harm of the second death in the lake of fire, which according to Revelation takes place in the presence of the lamb and his angels, again, I keep reiterating that, is of a limited duration. It is upon the unregenerate human beings who will not experience eternity in torments, but instead will have their part in the second death, their portion where there'll be a, a hurt. The psalmist says this, listen closely, Psalms eleven six. Upon the wicked shall he rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. 
This shall be the portion of their cup. Again, that's similar to saying the hurt or the injury of their cup, but it's just a portion of his cup of wrath, not an eternal uh, flooding of that upon them. All that being said, those who are overcoming don't need to worry about such things. Uh, uh, in the said lake, nothing to fear because Jesus has promised in his second promise that you will not be hurt in that second death. Number three, and I will give to eat of the hidden manna. Now, uh, we don't know what it is. So it's gonna be spiritual, I'm sure. But in close parallel and fulfillment of the scripture, the introduction of manna, again, is in the early uh, books of the Bible, Exodus 16, 15. We're introduced to a physical manna. There we read, and when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, it is manna. For they wist not know what it was. They didn't know what it is, so they called it manna. And Moses said unto them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat, okay? Here in Revelation, Jesus promises those who are overcoming that he will give them hidden manna. Moses gave them apparent manna out in the open. Jesus is now going to give them hidden manna, and in between the apparent manna and the absolutely hidden manna, we have different types of manna being presented in Scripture. And there's, a discover, there's kind of a progression digression of material manna and a progression of spiritual manna as we go through scripture. So first there's the substance that showed up outside the tents of the nation of Israel when they were uh, hungry and it was supposed to, apparently it tasted like coriander seed and honey and all the rules that went along, eat it that day, don't store it up, you can store up some for the Sabbath, all that stuff, but it was given from heaven and it was on the ground and they came out of their tents and they ate it up, and then they got spoiled and got tired of this yucky manna, and so God sent quails later, but this was the first uh, manna. Then, tying the physical to the spiritual, Jesus, in John chapter five, he shows up and he says, uh, I'm going to uh, do a miracle, I'm paraphrasing here, and he created loaves of bread from a couple loaves and some fishes, and he fed the masses and he fed them literal bread. And the next day, they try to hunt him down, and he's kind of evading them, and finally the masses find him, and they say, we want more of what you have to teach. And Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto you in John 6, 26, you seek me, not because you, uh, you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. You just want the bread. That's why you're after, you're not after the miracle that was done, you just wanna feed your damn flesh, man. And that's why you're following me. Labor not for the bread which perishes, that's what the manna did, but for the bread which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. So Jesus now says, I'm gonna give you a bread. I'll give it to you. Look for that bread. Don't look for the bread to feed your body, all right? So Jesus is leading them from the literal physical coriander seed and honey manna that the Jews had in the wilderness to now him saying, don't seek after this. Seek after the bread that I can give you, right? And, and uh, then he says at verse 30, they said therefore to him, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe ye? What do you what dost thou work? 
do a miracle for us. And being on the topic of bread, they started talking now about bread and they said, our fathers, comparing Jesus to their fathers, Moses, did eat manna in the desert. And it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what they were saying is, we want you, Jesus. And he says, you don't want me, you just want more bread. Search for the bread that comes from heaven. And they said, well, do us a miracle because our fathers, you know, they give us bread to eat. And Jesus says in reply, verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. Don't say our fathers got that from, uh, 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 he gave them bread to eat. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Don't go back to the, the physical here. Stay here. I want to, my father will give you the true bread from heaven if you want it. For the bread of God is he. So now Jesus moves into describing this bread from heaven as himself. So he goes from this to that. Now it's right in front of him. He says, for the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life to the world. So now he has likened himself to it. And they said unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So the Lord has made it plain. Seek to consume him. Eat him in your spirit spiritually consume his flesh, his blood. Doesn't mean cannibalism. It means to spiritually consume who he is. That's the bread of life that came down from heaven, right? And uh, then we move forward six verses and we read, then the Jews murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which has come down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, the father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I came down from heaven? And then at verse 48, Jesus repeats and says, I am that bread of life. Your fathers, coriander seed, honey seed, honey eaters, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. That's, what, that's, how, that's where he puts everything physical. You want to be fed by bread, you're going to be dead. Don't go back to that. They're dead. This is the bread, I imagine him pointing to himself, which came down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. So we're getting heavy here in front of these guys. He's pointing to himself. He's saying, eat of this, me. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. The bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? What is this? What's he talking about? Then Jesus said to them, verily, verily, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Doesn't mean literally, of course. Unless you bring in who he is and spiritually consume him, you'll have no life in you. That's outside the city walls. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. This is whoo, wild stuff to be saying to these Jews. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, shall, uh, he shall live 
by me. This is the bread, I'm sure he's pointing to himself, which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. And it says these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. A couple verses later it says, and many left him at this point, many of his disciples. This is when Jesus went from being popular outside, inside the city gates, to crowds starting to lessen, to hanging alone on a cross outside the city gates. It started with this teaching. We're gonna start to see him, he reached the paramount, and then when he said, okay, let me tell you about bread, you gotta eat me, and it was too much. It said, and many walked away from him that day. So we see that progression from coriander seed and honey to miracle loaves, to bread from heaven, to Jesus being himself the bread that they have to eat. And now he says and promises to those who overcome, I will give you hidden manna. Now he's taking us to another level. We have no idea. Uh, But it might be him. It might be something about him, of course, the result of him. I, I don't know what it is. Hidden means concealed. It means manna that we have not seen, that we do not know or understand. It is kept secret. And those who overcome will be given this by Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. We have a lot of interesting imagery coming out of Revelation for what he promises people who overcome. Uh, Again, whether we physically are eating it, the tree of life, the the hidden manna, whatever it is, There's something there that is being bestowed and it is not really known what, but there is a promise of the bestowal. Pretty radical. So, and the manna seems to be a a spiritual food which you will be nourished by after this life. We tend to think of once you die, you've arrived at a place where that's it but it seems like these things he's introducing, a tree whose fruit and, and the bread that's hidden have some sort of application to what happens after this life. I don't know what, but it seems like that. So when people say, well, when you die, you're just gonna sit there and just do this, this seems to be, maybe we will just do that, but this seems to be saying we're gonna be nourished in what we're doing. So, uh, Also, one more thing, the hidden manna probably goes back to when the Jews would get the manna from heaven, they would take a portion of it and they would put a pot of it and lay it up in the most holy place, which was hidden from view from the rest of the people. And they did this as a memorial according to Exodus chapter 16. So there's something about that portion being hidden away and kept for those Uh, of a different site, a different place, a different purpose, a different time. Hidden away, but used for something different. Manna is also called angel's food in Psalm 78, 25. Corn from heaven, 78, 24. So it's emblematic to me in Revelation as spiritual food of some sort. All right, finally for today, number four. In addition to hidden manna, Jesus says to those who are overcoming at the church at Pergamos, I will give to him a white stone. We're getting really trippy here. Now you're gonna get a stone. And for starters, there are those who believe that the promises that are being described here are literal and they're for believers today. I do not see Jesus literally giving anybody a white stone today. 
So because of that, I say this has to be futuristic after this life stuff. Because you only know you've overcome when you've overcome, and that's going to be at your death. So I'm not sure I agree with that, but we're going to get a white stone at some point in time. And um, all these material things, the tree of life, hidden manna, white stone, are kind of collectively growing into the title of priests, kings, joint heirs, sons and daughters of God, family members, true sons of God, true daughters of God. All of this stuff is relating to that, this giving of to, to this. And so when people start to go off the deep end, so to speak, and start to come up with all kinds of fan, uh, fanciful imaginations of what this means and, you know, David Koresh it and really try to tell you what the white stone everything is, we just don't know. Uh, but it seems to have application. The, the, the word for white is leukos, and uh, it means light or white. And interesting, the word for stone here is not petros, it's uh, sephos, which means a pebble that has been worn down and smooth by, typically by water or erosion, typically by water. So we're talking about some stone that is smooth and a small pebble. And in addition to that line where he says, I'll give you a white stone, he says, and in the stone, a new name written. Now, some of you who are LDS know the, how, what Joseph Smith did with that. He took it and he applied it to earth. That was, his, that was one of his specialties, was taking things that are heavenly and applying them to earth. And so he took the, the words of this new name and being given, and it says, and no man knows it save he that receives it. We have that application for Mormons who go in the temple and they receive a new name, Alibaba, and they, uh, they go through the temple forever, them only knowing the name Alibaba, the secret temple name. And this is where Smith probably had that, uh, that idea of this is where it came from. Um, the meaning seems to be that the Lord is going to give us a gift, a token of some sort. It's going to have a new name written in it. It might be his name, it might be a, your name, a new name, and only you are going to understand what's written in that new stone. And it's gonna be between you and, and apparently Christ. Now, again, don't know, we can only just, but it seems to be a giant privilege, huge privilege to have one of these stones. And um, I went back to the Greek and the Romans and the Hebrews to see if there was anything that went on with white stones and giving of stones that could be applied. And interestingly enough, the white stone was a stone that signified good fortune and purity. And it's a remarkable echo in the Greeks. Often judgments were decided with black stones and white stones like the Masons will do today. And they will blackball and they will use different stone colors. Stones uh, were used in the breastplate of the high priest. And uh, so from all that, there's a connection between Christians, kings, priests, unto the most high God, a white stone having favor, the name written in the stone, having something that's unique to you, and the, the idea that only you know that name, something personal between you and Christ. And all of that is pretty much surface information. And I know I really, it's kind of meaningless because I just covered the facts because we really don't know what the application will be. But at least we know that this will occur when we die and get there. It will be interesting to see what we uh, discover it to mean. 
Okay, questions or comments? <coughs> Microphone, please say your name. And someone make sure Diana's alive. Hi. Hi. This is Mike. I have a question and a comment. As yes. far as the hidden manna, my, I thought, uh, you know, you're, you talk about uh, God being in his all in all now. God has been hidden from us. It's a thought. Oh, okay. So he is now revealed. Wow. Love that. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. It's as good as anything else. What else? Um, the other thing I was thinking about is, you know, you're talking about this uh, purging period, which I, I don't disagree with you at all. But we're also talking about um, those that enter are overcoming. So, and you know, it's something that I always worry about because I know I'm not there. I'm not close. But um, so if we enter in, we're still, and that's why I agree with you that there's going to be something going on because I think we're still going to be overcoming or mm. there'll be things to overcome still, even mm. though we've, you know, accepted the, you know, by faith that mm -hmm. that Jesus died for us. And I don't know what, you, I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Same as yours. I don't know. There just, there just it seems to be more than just the, and I don't mean to be sarcastic, sitting on a cloud and playing a harp. Right. There's more to it. Um, and I hate to, uh, I'll just verge just for a second. Um, I said this on our show last week, but uh, I am very skeptical of near-death experiences. I always have been. I don't like them. I don't like books written about them, but somebody sent me a link, which I very rarely will watch, but some reason I watch this, and this is a, a doctor, uh, Mary Neal is her name. Husband's a surgeon, she's a surgeon, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, who was underwater for literally 30 minutes probably, maybe, she says 15, but she says it was really probably 30 according to the witnesses. And she described the whole deal, the whole deal of what happens. And, and she, said, she, she went into this as like a kind of a marginal Catholic. She's like, yeah, I'm a Christian and Jesus and things. But, so it wasn't related to, to the faith at all. And there wasn't a, a theology test and there wasn't a worthiness test. She just, she just describes what happened. But the thing that leads to your point is she says, as I drew toward this place where I did not want to leave from, I was not pleased to have to come back at all, and I had a good life with four young kids. I did not want to come back here at all, but I was reassured they would be fine. But I, when I saw, she said, everyone was busy. That's what she said. So that's a very different picture than the, what we kind of have encouraged throughout the, the past few centuries of what happens. So that's all I can give to that. Pretty interesting. Mary Neal, if you want to check it out. Right in the front. You know how God's word is written in our heart. Because we may not no longer have Bibles. So I'm thinking the stone and is God's word written in our heart. And because of white represents purity. So possibly. Why not? Possibly. Because <clears throat> possibility is anything else. That's all. Thank you. Over to David. Please say your name. This is David. <laughs> um, 
this uh, has uh, discussion has given me a different perspective of total annihilation, mm. and that is what is totally annihilated. Oh, okay. Not you are. Right. What that lived in you yeah. is now totally annihilated. I get that. That makes sense. Yeah. Good point. So that's all. The total annihilationist was uh, Ellen G. White. She was, I mean, there was others, but she really pushed that. And people, my good friend Matt Slick will say, that's a heresy. And, but that, I see what you're talking about, and I can see that being very easily possible with Scripture. Yeah. Anybody else? All right, let's pray, I mean, and uh, we'll get out of here. Uh, Lord, we're uh, grateful for life, and uh, we pray that you will be with us as we exit this place where we've gathered together just to kind of talk and hear the word and reflect, and uh, help us to go out and be Christians. And that doesn't mean in word, preaching to everybody we see, but it means to love others. Help us to love. Help us to be kind and forgiving and not judging and accepting of all people all the time in your name and to help them understand that you have saved them and they can believe on that and their life will change. And for the better, it will change. So we pray that you'll bless those who are seeking, those who are having troubles and struggles and trials and difficulties, which we all are, we pray for our sister Heidi, for her ministry and for her health, continued health. The doctor's working with her. We pray for Liz and her relapse and that you will help her body heal. Uh, we pray for Marlene and for healing her foot and ankle, for Mike Jenkins, for his fears, for Jarvis and his battle with cancer, Leah for peace and healing, Taylor to overcome his addiction, uh, Glenn Gregory, comfort him in passing from this life to the next. Daniel, who has left Mormonism, that'll find a relationship with you, God. And um, Jeanette, heal her heart that's broken, help her financially and with her family. And all the other stories that are in and around us and those whose names aren't here and people who are having troubles in their heart right here in the sound of my voice. And uh, difficulties and trials and setbacks, myself included, just help us walk by faith, trust, be kind. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.